Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. The 8th chapter of the book of Romans, beginning with verse 18. Romans 8.18. When Pastor Sarver called me in Texas and let me know that he had accepted uh, the uh, invitation to go to Iowa to preach, and that therefore I would be upon my approval, responsible for this morning service, I determined to think through what would be timely for you and what might be of help to the congregation in the day in which we live. And struggling to come up with something new and fresh, I was virtually shut up to something that I preached when I was away from you in Dayton, Ohio, though I trust that I'll be able to do a more thorough job here with you than I was there with limited time, I want to preach to you this morning and this evening on the subject of the Christian's perpetual posture, which is that of waiting in hope. I'm aware that Pastor Sarver taught us a series on waiting on God, and there's certainly overlapping in the concept with that and what I want to preach today. But I want to emphasize not so much the waiting as the hope in which we wait, and to preach to you on Christian hope, these two sermons, if the Lord will, in order to set the stage for our consideration of the biblical doctrine of Christian hope, I want us to read this passage in Romans 8, beginning with verse 18, and reading through verse 25. Speaking of the sufferings of this present time, the apostle says in verse 18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us. For the earnest expectation of the creation waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to vanity, not of its own will, but by reason of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the liberty of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And not only so, but ourselves also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for our adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. For in hope were we saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for that which he sees? But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience or with endurance wait for it. Again, please join me as we seek the help of the Lord in understanding and obeying his word. Let us pray. Our Father, you know our insufficiency and inadequacy in handling such truth. And we know your power and your grace in being ready and able to help us at such time. And so we do appeal to the throne of grace to give us help now in our time of need that this preacher may have your spirit as he preaches that 
he may preach with boldness as he ought to speak, that he ought that he be able to preach with liberty, that you pour your blessing upon his preaching, not on account of any good in him, since there is none, but on account of the good that's perfected in your son and his own work in my behalf. And then, O oh Lord, help the hearers, every one of them, the weak of the flesh, the weary of mind, the undisciplined of heart, those who are discouraged, those who are, have unconfessed sin, those who have ought against brethren that have blocked their minds to your word, those that come waiting upon you for a word from heaven, those that have all manner of opposition to their hearing you, we pray you'd break down the, the barriers that in grace should speak to hearts and open up our hearts to receive your word as we ought to receive it. Hear our plea. Answer us for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Now the way in which I want to lay out this subject to you, the perpetual posture of the saint, which is waiting in hope, is to lay before you several points. And I believe I counted one, two, three, four, five, six, seven in the whole message. I'm going to attempt to give you five of them this morning and the last two this evening. Some of this in the first five are not as long as those others, so I trust that this is a dividing it up about halfway in between. It is my intention this morning in the first place to lay before you the reason that we are in our perpetual posture waiting in hope. And then secondly, to speak briefly to the importance or the particular importance of this doctrine in our day. It's important in any day, but there's a particular importance of this subject in our day. And then third, to attempt to lay before you something of the prolific biblical basis of this subject. To show you proof in the scripture that it is the ordinary and ongoing posture of every true saint that he waits in hope for that which he does not now possess. Then in the fourth place, I intend, based on what we've heard, to define for you the doctrine of Christian hope, a brief working definition of Christian hope. And then finally this morning, to present to you the ground and the object of our hope, that hope which makes us able, enduring, to wait till the end and to endure to the end the ground and object of our hope. Then the Lord willing tonight, we'll take up the subject of the benefits of a strong hope in the heart of the Christian and the cultivation of such hope in our hearts as we live in this world, waiting for the world to come. First of all, then, let me show you the reason that the Christian's perpetual posture is that of waiting in hope. And it's important to understand that. It is not the goal of Christ for the saint in this world to reach his summit. It is not God's will that once you're a Christian in this world, that in this world you get everything you need and have coming to you. That's not the plan. Many have been disillusioned because after coming to some expression of faith in Christ, things did not turn out in this world the way they assumed they would if they were Christians. Having the Spirit. You heard the Apostle say, even we who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown within ourselves. Why did he use that language? 
because there's a surprise for some who have the spirit of Christ and assume thereby that everything in this world is going to fall into place now. We'll prosper in health. We'll prosper economically. We'll do well. We have the spirit. And the apostle says that even we, not just the inanimate and animate creation, but even we who have the spirit groan in pain and travail with the rest of creation right up until this present time, waiting for something we don't have now. There is a groaning within the heart of every saint of God that will not be removed till the end of this world. Look at the scriptures. The text we read in Romans 8 is one, but there's another. First Peter chapter 1. Interestingly that we read this morning in our consecutive readings, verses 3 through 5, and then verse 13. And it's interesting also to note that when Peter writes this epistle, in order to help a suffering community of believers, he lays the foundation for their making it through these sufferings in the principle of Christian hope. Look at verse 3 of 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has given us plenty of riches in this world. No. Who according to his great mercy has made us in our church not vulnerable to the diseases that other people around us are vulnerable to. That's not what he says. Who according to his great mercy has given us extraordinary gifts that most Christians don't have. No, no. But according to his great mercy has begotten us again unto a living hope. Now note the word hope. He has not put within our hand many of the things we long to have in our hand. He has put within our heart hope. You see the difference? Something that looks to the future. Because what it has right now is not everything it's going to have later. He has begotten us again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Look, verse 4, unto an inheritance incorruptible. Implying that it's different from what we would get if we got something in this world which is corruptible. This whole creation has been subjected to vanity, to the bondage of corruption. But God has given to us an inheritance that's incorruptible. And note further, undefiled and that fades not away. How is this true? Why does it not fade away? Why will it not be corrupted? Why will it be undefiled? Because it's reserved in heaven for us. It is not on the earth, not on this earth, not in this age, not in this world that this inheritance is ours. It is reserved in another place at another time for us in heaven. Now the principle is this. The first reason that we wait in hope is that we do not here and now possess what we will possess then and there. We do not here and now possess what we will possess. Let us get it clear. Now most of us know that. But some need to have it drilled into the mind. That the Christian in this world, even the Christian that is confident that he's indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, 
in whom Christ lives by faith, even he knows that there's something he does not possess now. And he has hope of possessing it later. A simple statement. We do not here and now possess that which we will possess. There is laid up for us in heaven that which we anticipate possessing later. Now, I'm not saying we don't possess salvation. But there is an aspect of salvation we do not now possess. There is a salvation, as we read in this epistle, ready to be revealed at the last time. It's there. It is securely ours. It is reserved for us. And we are guarded for that by God's goodness through faith. But it is not in our grasp. We do not here and now possess it in actuality of experience. The experience waits for a future. That's why the word hope is used. It's a looking to the future. We do not here and now possess this precious commodity, which we will. But the second statement as to the reason of the saint's perpetual posture of waiting in hope is this. Not only do we not here and now possess that which we will possess, we do not here and now possess that which we desire to possess. It's very important to understand, as we read in Romans chapter 8, we groan together in travail, waiting. Now, what's the apostle saying? He's saying that not only do we not have glory and the redemption of a body, not only do we still inhabit this body of sin, so that he says in Romans 7, who shall deliver me from this body of sin? I find that when I would do good, evil is present with me. And everywhere I go, and my greatest strenuous efforts at holy obedience to God's law and to Christ's way is frustrated by this something in me called the law of sin and death. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? That's Romans 7. In Romans 8, he gives the answer. It's grounded in Romans 8, 1. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. But it finds its culmination in Romans 8, 18 through 25 and following. In that in the future day, there's coming a time when the sons of God will be manifested. Right now, it does not appear what we shall be. That's 1 John, right? We're the sons of God. Behold what manner of love that we should be called the sons of God. But it doesn't appear what we shall be as sons of God. But someday it will appear. We will be manifested. The sons of God. And when that happens, what else will happen? The whole creation will be revealed in glory. And liberated from its bondage to corruption. Everything that rots and that decays and that fades away. Including the best we have according to 1 Peter 1. Gold and silver. All that fading and rotting and decaying and rusting will be ended in the glorious liberty of the sons of God. And the apostle says, not only is it going to happen, but that's what we want to happen. Now, brethren, I submit to you that this is a critical truth. Because we are inundated in our day by so-called Christian doctrine. It has as its beginning and its end, as its prime motivation, this world and the things of this world. The very preaching of Christ is designed to motivate people to gain more of this world. The very essence of worship is to titillate worldly lust through entertainment to secure converts through giving them the very things Christ is calling them to repent of. 
the goal of the gospel has been so perverted in our day, both in Rome and in evangelical Protestantism, in so many places that it's quite confusing now what we are waiting for and hoping for. What's the goal of the Christian life? To be happy here and now. To feel peace in the heart. To get your marriage straight. To get your finances right. To get the government in shape so that we won't have these wicked abortion clinics and these these bad criminals running free on the streets. I said, what is the goal of the Christian life? And in many gospels, those are the goals. And one of the wretched problems of our day, one of the insidious devices of the devil is to get Christians or professing Christians sidetracked from their ultimate purpose and goal into these short-term earthly goals that even if we succeeded in them, brethren, we would still be groaning together with the rest of creation in the bondage of corruption. And that's why so many in our day are frustrated because they have gotten all the stuff that they were promised they would get if they would do follow the preacher. And it ain't what they wanted. But the true saint does not set his heart on this world. He really does long for the next world. This is not his home. He doesn't want this to be his home. He does not give the better part of his life and energy to building himself a permanent place here. He builds the, gives the better part of his life and energy to building him a place there. He lays up treasure in heaven where moth doth not corrupt and rust does not erode and thieves do not break into steel. The saint of God longs for something later. That's the reason he is in a perpetual posture of hope, waiting in hope. He doesn't have what he's going to have. He doesn't have what he wants to have. And so he's in a position of longing for something else, of waiting for it in hope. That's the reason. Second, something of the importance of this subject for our day, and we may have already hinted it. Our generation doesn't believe in heaven. Now, I'm not suggesting that every generation previous to ours did, nor am I suggesting there ever was a time when a whole generation of people throughout the world believed in heaven. But ours certainly doesn't. They don't believe in the hereafter. They believe in coming back here after. The New Age people, the Shirley MacLaines of our day, they've been here lots of times and they plan to be here lots of other times. They don't believe in heaven. They believe in this world. In whatever forms you want to return to this world, that's it. They don't believe in that world. They don't have heaven. Our generation has had stolen from its conscience the doctrine of heaven. Our school system ought to teach heaven. Science ought to teach heaven. There is a world that now is and there is a world to come. And scientists ought to tell children about that world to come. Because it's truth. It's true knowledge. It's science. And you say, well, that's not science because there's no way empirically to prove it. Then God made a big mistake in the way he organized the truth. In the way he presented the truth. I submit to you, if you're going to teach kids the truth about the world, you need to teach them about both worlds. The source of knowledge may be faith, but the knowledge is still knowledge, and children need to be taught it, but they don't. So they grow up being inundated by this pressure to conform to this age and to have the things of this age. May I say this? The very racial foment of our generation that began in earnest when I was a teenager and has culminated in continuing uprisings throughout the world so that nobody seems to be able to even say a word without it being interpreted in some sort of radical negative way 
freedom of speech has been denied all kinds of people in the name of racism and bigotry in a culture in which the black and the brown and the yellow and the red have indeed been mistreated and have been mis misdone by whites and others in majority. And in the time of foment, what has been the hope held out to the minority? What has been that which motivates him to revolt? What is used in South Africa as a rationale to revolt, rebel, and overthrow the government? What is being sold our nation a bill of goods in that whole line? Not the hope of the Christian. Not a world to come. There is no such thing. If you're going to get it, buddy, you've got to get it now. And if you wait on these people, they're not going to give it to you. So go get it and take it from them, even if you have to kill them to do it. And even if many of you lose their lives. You see, the Bible doctrine of revolution is that there ain't supposed to be any. Be not associated with them that are given to change. Romans 13, submit to the higher powers. And in that case, it was Nero. Or maybe Claudius. Or maybe Caligula. And you take your pick of which one of the perverted leaders of Rome you would like to submit to. God commanded it. Why? How can a Christian submit to such a text? How can a Christian pay taxes to Nero who's going to use it to kill Christians? How can he do that? Nero's going to kill Christians' children with tax dollars paid by Christians. You're telling me i got to pay taxes to that corrupt government? God did. Why? How can a Christian do such things? Because his hope is not in this world. And what I have the temerity to say to you is, that that's simple, isn't it? But they've said it's simplistic. They told me in college, this is pie in the sky by and by. And this was a college that taught me theology from a Baptist denomination's evangelical conservative standpoint. And they allowed professors to teach that this was a pie-in-the-sky mentality. And in their theater in the college campus, a Baptist college campus, which had a liberal arts curriculum, in the theater, while a good conservative theologian in the Bible class might teach heaven, in the theater, the drama professor, who didn't even know who Christ was and couldn't care less, was allowed to put on plays in the name of the university that denied the existence of God. And charge tickets to students to come and see and be entertained. This generation has had the hope of heaven robbed from it. When even religion and the great religious leaders that will come into the newspaper are people by and large that have no thought of the world to come. They don't believe in the judgment to come. They don't believe in the hope of glory. Their lives are summed up in this world. Their God is their belly. They know nothing other than the horizontal and the immediate and the now and the carnal and the belly. They, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. The apostle said, weeping. I say to you, there are many who are enemies of the cross of Christ in Philippians 3, whose God is their belly, who mind earthly things. And he was speaking of preachers. Who say they're preaching Jesus. And he said, but we wait for a Savior from heaven. The contrast between the saint and the, and the perverted theologian is, this man's God is his belly. The saint waits for a Savior from heaven who shall change this vile body and fashion it like unto his glorious body. My hope is there. His hope is here. We mind heavenly things. He minds earthly things. We use the world, but we don't overuse it.
This is a passing thing that we use for the glory of God. It is not the end of all things. This generation has no such outlook, no such hope. They really are without God and without hope in the world. Their minds have no concept of hope. In fact, in some languages, there isn't even a word for hope. And one of the goals of Christian missions is to put that word into their language. Why do men love money? Because they believe that money can get for them all the things necessary for their happiness. We know it can't, but because they don't know there's anything else beyond that, that's all, that's the best they can do. If they believed in heaven, money would become relatively much less important to them. Why do people resort to drugs and alcohol, which is the most devastating drug of our culture? Because this world's provision for escape and pleasure are the best provisions they know about. They don't have heaven to think about. They have nothing to look forward to beyond this world. And they've tried the best of this world and it didn't do any good for them. There's why so much of the drug culture is filled with despair. There is no hope. They know they're killing themselves. You cannot argue this against them by saying you're going to kill yourself. It does not do any ultimate good to show an egg frying to a drug addict and say this is your brain on cocaine. It does not ultimately do much good because he already knows that. He's not that stupid. He doesn't care. He has no hope. You must teach him the old simple conservative Bible so-called myth that there's something better later. You must teach him what some slaves were taught. That even though you're mistreated, there's something beyond to hope in. Out of that comes some good hymnody. But you take pie in the sky away and you give them only this world. And what you'll have is a bunch of bitter and anger and frustrated revolutionaries who today in America, many have got what the white man had. And they're no more happy than they were. There's just a little bit worse problem now. They're disillusioned now. Because now what they thought would satisfy didn't work. Now what do they do? And I tell you, we have set them up for right revolutionary mentality. Because we have held out the things of riches to them. Many of them have them. And they've learned what the white man has not learned yet. That's not the answer. Brethren, I tell you, I do not feel that it is the primary task of the Christian church to make sure that the minorities get an equal access to clothing, cars, houses, and feed that the majority do. I don't believe that's our goal. If it were, we're not doing it. We're failing. I have something I believe much better to give to them. Am I saying that I'm defending slavery or putting down... No, no. I'm saying to you that the Christian church's message has very little to do with the hope of this world. It has to do primarily with preparing men for the judgment day and heaven. And if you want to give a man a reason to stay alive and to do right, you tell him about heaven. Don't tell him about what he can get in this world because he's never going to make it in this world. That's the reason that this is of particular importance in our day. Well, let's look at the biblical proof. And brethren, this is sample. This is just taking from texts of Scripture samples. And I've only chosen two books, Psalms and the 11th chapter of Hebrews. And we could go on and on. And you'll see other texts sprinkled throughout these two sermons. But turn back with me to the 38th Psalm. And we'll go forward in the Psalms from chapter 38. What I'm doing is reading text that can be applied to you in this place today. Many of you 
get discouraged and go into despair because you're sinners. And you thought that by now you wouldn't be so bad as you are. And because you have short-sightedness in the plan and purpose of God, you thought that when he saved you, that it would sort of be an automatic up, upward stairway to heaven and you'd just get better and better and it would be observable so much so that certain kinds of sins that you were guilty of a few years back wouldn't even be possible. And I heard one man in, when our visit to Texas make that statement that he was just so thankful God had delivered him from, from a particular sin that he could no longer do that one again. He was sure he learned his lesson. And I shuddered and I, I said, I, I think I would change the terminology a bit. I would say, thank God that he has given me a measure of restraint and that that sin has not stuck its ugly head up recently. And I thank the Lord for that. And I pray that will continue. But don't say you got that one killed. Don't speak in mortification in past tense terms as long as you're in this world. But a lot of you have trouble with your hope because your ongoing sins. And brethren, I'm not preparing a word here to give you an excuse for your ongoing sins or to say, therefore, lower your guard. No, no. Are you continually happy about the way these ongoing sins are treating you? You like being in despair as a result of them? You'll continue to be so if you don't mortify them. But let's look at the biblical doctrine of hope in the midst of this in verse 4 of Psalm 38. Mine iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. This is a Psalm of David. This is not pre-conversion psalmody. This is a saint of God. Mine iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. Do you know the experience as a saint of having sins that you simply just know that you can't overcome unless God gives grace? I hope you know that there's not a single sin you can overcome without grace. But sometimes God gives us certain ones to keep us mindful. We need grace. No, sir, you're not able to conquer your sins. They're gone over you. They're a heavy burden upon your head. There's another problem, though, that the saint has in verse 12. They also that seek after my life lay snares for me, and they that seek my hurt speak mischievous things and meditate deceits all the day long. Here's a man who's got his own sins to reckon with, and they're a burden he can't bear. And here's a man who's got other people fussing with him, lying to him, planning to deceive him all the time, and laying snares for him, and speaking mischievous things to him and about him. That hurts. That's tough. And a lot of times, just because he's a Christian. How does he handle this? Verse 13. But as a deaf man, I hear not. As a dumb man that opens not his mouth, I'm a man who hears not, in whose mouth are no reproofs. Verse 15, how come I can respond that way? For in thee, O Jehovah, do I hope. Thou wilt answer, O Lord my God. At the point of my felt and obvious inability to deal with my on, ongoing failure and sins, which are too heavy for me to bear, thou art my hope, O Jehovah. When I look into the face of a habit, and if I could utter honest words before God, I would have to say, I can't stop it. And in the next breath, I would have to say, well, what does that say about my conversion? I thought Christians did have the power to stop sin. And yes, they do. So then I have nothing to do but doubt that I'm a Christian. Then what do I do? Do I go through the motions again and make the same prayers again? And what is the devil constantly doing with you at this He's constantly bugging you by saying, you know, really, you might as well quit. How many times have you done this already before? 
And nothing's changed, has it? You know who he is speaking? He's the slanderer. He's the accuser of the brethren because he's got you so focused now on your own self and your own failure and your own weakness. You haven't even remembered in the last five minutes the cross and the provision of God and the grace of God and the power of God and the spirit of God and the fact that Jesus said, if you have not, you have not because you ask not. And that if you ask, my father will give you good things, even his spirit. And you don't, instead of doing what the Bible says do when you're overcome with sin, you sit there and wallow around in your overcomeness with sin. Start just start explaining what this means. It means you sinned. It means you need to be forgiven. It means you need to run to the fountain open for sin and uncleanness. Confess it and forsake it. That's what it means. If you don't do that, you'll bear your sin. You can't bear your sin. So lay it on another. In thee, O Jehovah, do I hope. What about when other people, even when you've done right... Even when you're not guilty, you're blameless and they snare you with their words and they lie to you and they mistreat you and they mischievously treat you. And the old Jehovah do I hope. I don't even hear them. He has disciplined his ear to shut out as a deaf man the words of the slanderers and the accuser. It takes training. Some of you are so poorly trained and so stubborn in your selfishness you have not even made an effort to train yourself to shut your ear to certain things. And the first little word just blows you away. Somebody just throws a little negative word at you and your whole joy collapses. Some of you by Monday morning at 8.30 have killed everything that happened on the Lord's Day because you haven't trained yourself in Scripture. And you're not able to say because of the lack of exercise of your senses, your spiritual senses, in zeal, Jehovah, do I hope. I don't hear that. Here, the provision of your own sin, the provision of persecution is satisfied in the Jehovah hope. And look at chapter 39 of Psalm, verse 6. Here's a guy that's observed the world. He's watching other people. He's watching men. Surely every man walks in a vain show. Surely they are disquieted in vain. All these people panic, upset. It's all vain. He heaps up riches and knows not who shall gather them. Verse 7, though. And now, Lord, what wait I for? These people are spending their time waiting on the stock market to come in. They spend their time waiting for their new Mercedes or their better home or whatever. All of which are legitimate in themselves. But these guys set their hopes on those things. They live their lives in these areas. What do I wait for? Verse 7. My hope is in thee. That's what I wait for. Notice. Not my hope is in you giving me those things. My hope is in thee. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Then turn to chapter 43, which we've heard in recent days. Verse 5, lecturing the soul. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? He's looking at his soul and almost insulting his soul. He's ridiculing his soul. What's wrong with you, soul? Hope thou in God. For I shall yet praise him. Now here's a man who has reason to wonder if he'll ever praise God again. He's lost his heart. His prayers are dull. His Bible reading's dull, dry. Worship doesn't seem to break through to him anymore. The singing of hymns are difficult for him. He just can't break loose. And yet what does he do when he gets in that case? His soul gets disquieted when it sees its condition. His soul begins to wonder if it's safe and secure. And he, he begins to get agitated inside. And what does he do? He lectures that soul from his knowledge of the scripture. And he says, what's wrong with you? 
Why are you all upset? Hope in God. I shall yet praise Him. Some of you desperately need to, maybe all of us desperately need to learn this discipline of addressing ourselves objectively. Especially some of you ladies. You were trained to think subjectively. And you're used to thinking subjectively. And you've learned to let your emotional and hormonal makeup deliver control most of your thinking. And rather than thinking through scripture, you think through your feelings. So that when the problem arises, and I'm not ridiculing the reality of your emotions, those are very real. But you've got to learn to discipline the mind. To have it transformed. To have it renewed according to the scriptures. So that when you get in this blither of blah, you're able to look at your soul who's cast down and say, what's wrong with you? Hope in God. You shall yet praise Him. And move on with your duties. And don't burden everybody else down with your depression. Don't, don't panic in the presence of others who are looking for a testimony of the sufficiency of Christ in your face. Give it to them. And I feel like I'd be a hypocrite if I acted happy when I'm really not. Then be happy. You won't be acting happy when you're not. Well, how do you do that? Hope in God. Pastor, that seems so simplistic. Brethren, this is what the Bible does. That's my point. The Bible gives the most basic and simple solution. People in this generation hate me when I do this to them. I've sat at the counseling desk. I've been on the telephone. And I've been on there for hours sometimes trying to let, get somebody to listen to Scripture. And I said, what you need to do is trust God. They said, oh, that's easy for you to say. Yes, it is. And I well am aware that it's easier to say than to do. I myself go through the same thing you do. I know it's tough, but there's a solution to it. You've got to grow up. You've got to get out of yourself. And you've got to look to the promise of God. And you've got to say, yet shall I praise Him. And get up and go on with your duty. Oh, how we need in this generation to learn duty. The thing that distinguished George Washington was his sense of duty. Read his biography. The thing that distinguished Robert E. Lee was his duty. And their mothers are the ones that taught it to them. Mothers, women, subject to hormonal surprises, taught their children and trained them to act on duty, not on feeling. We need a generation of moms like that. Reject the way you're feeling. Crucify it. And do your duty. God never promised that when you do your duty, you were always going to be in tip-top emotional shape. Or that you didn't have the duty if you weren't. But how do you deal with it? Hoping in God. Then in chapter 52, a precious text. And remember, these are samplings. Verse 7 tells us, This is the man that made not God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches. Again, the contrast. But verse 9 says, I will give thee thanks forever, because you've done it. And I will hope in your name, for it is good in the presence of your saints. I will hope in God's name. You remember what the name of God is from our series on the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Remember the Ten Commandments? The name of the Lord is anything by which God makes himself known. It's God's reputation, if we may put it that way. Creation, providence, and redemption. The three great categories of God's manifesting himself and his will and his mind and his ways to his creatures. 
You can see his handiwork by the things he's made. The way he preserves them, you learn a lot about God's character. And in the way he saves his people from their sins, you learn all the more about it. His name, that by which he may be known, I will hope in thy name. I will hope in thy name. In the ways that you're known, I'll hope. How has God made himself known? Well, the sun comes up every morning. Sometimes we don't see it. But very few of us look out the window and say to our kids, because of the cloud cover, oh, I guess the sun didn't make it today. Most of us, if our kids say, why didn't, I think mine did one time. I believe one of mine did ask the question, why didn't the sun come up today? And I think we said, well, it is up. No, I looked. What it is. You can't see it, but it's faithful. And God has built that into the system. Well, God's name is faithful. God in his creation and in his providence has shown his faithfulness, his orderliness, his predictability, if we may put it that way, without putting him in a box. And in redemption, which of you have ever experienced calling upon the name of the Lord and you weren't delivered? I say to you again, though you may this morning think you have not been heard in heaven, you would not be here if you had not been heard in heaven. You think that you want more than you have, so you think you have nothing. I tell you the fact that you're here hearing me and hearing me with some intelligence and receptivity is evidence that God has not thrown you out. Because if you had what you would have if God had forsaken you, you wouldn't be in this church building this morning. I will hope in thy name. And we could go on and on about the name of the Lord. The attributes of God. All those things we're hearing expounded Sunday by Sunday. God's attributes. I hope in those things. He doeth all things right. Therefore, when something goes wrong, I say, no, this is right. He is gracious so that when some tragedy happens behind it, I see God making it work together for good to those that love him and are the called according to his purpose. He is holy and righteous so that when I see the wicked perish, I don't go into despair. I would have been there too apart from grace. It's only just that the impenitent perish. I hope in God's name. And then Psalm 62. And I know that we're not going to get to the fifth this morning, but... We're going to get to the fourth. Psalm 62, verse 5. He lectures his soul again. It's one of my favorite psalms. It has two parts to it. It's waiting and silence. I like the way it puts it. My soul will wait in silence for God only. What he's saying is shut up and wait for God the evidences of little faith in me and the times when I know I'm slacking off and forgetting truth is when I start jabbering in my complaint and my murmuring and my fears and start mouthing all my concerns. The posture of a saint who has cultivated good Christian hope and confidence in God is that there's a quiet confidence in waiting on God. When the world falls apart around him, there's a sense of quiet confidence in him. We need to cultivate But he says in verse 5, My soul wait thou in silence for God only. For my expectation is from him. That zeroes our conscience in on the object of our hope. And it's only God. 
How long do you have to wait, Pastor? Well, for our purposes this morning until Jesus comes. When are you going to be free of this battle with sin and some failures and some defeats in battle? When Jesus comes and not before? When are you going to be free from persecutors and slanderers and deceitful men who through lying get much more money than you can get, who through breaking the Lord's day get much more better jobs than you can get ordinarily, who through every sin that you've rejected get the things you'd like to have, when are you going to get into a world of justice? Not until Jesus comes. You're going to stay in this perpetual posture of waiting in hope until Jesus comes. So what's your hope? It's not these things. It's the Lord who will give you whatever things you need and will withhold from you whatever things would hurt you and will never, if he is gracious to you, give you what you think you need and what you're convinced you cannot live without because he loves you too much to let you tell him what you must have. Wait for God only. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my high tower. I shall not be moved. That's the song. Turn quickly to Hebrews 11. We could go on and on in the Psalms, but that's a sampling. Did you see how continually, prolifically, through the psalmist consciousness, there's this doctrine of hope that's focused upon Jehovah, and he's able to contrast himself with the men of the world on over and over. What does he do? He waits. He waits. He waits. He waits. In hope. Not just waiting with wishful thinking, but in hope. But Hebrews 11. What a chapter. Because it's, it's the chapter of faith. But undergirding all this is that faith has laid hold of hope. Look at verse 1. Now faith is the substance or the assurance or the giving substance to things hoped for. You see, the chapter is about faith. But what is it faith is looking at? What is it faith is grabbed hold of? What is it faith is holding to? It's hope. Faith, there's a hope laid out there for us. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. There is laid up for me somewhere beyond the blue what I really want. How do I know? By faith I know. Faith gives substance to this hope. The real desire of my soul is not this world. But a heavenly country. Well, how do I lay hold on that? Because I can't see it by faith. So the subject of the chapter is faith by which I give substance to things that I hope for. But hope undergirds the need for faith. You abide these three. Faith, hope, and love. Those three. They're abiding virtues, inviting realities in the life of the Christian. Hope. Look at verse, chapter 10. Verse 35. Cast not away, therefore, your boldness. See, many were. They were losing their boldness. Now notice, folks, this is a boldness not only of verbal witnessing. In fact, not even primarily of verbal witnessing. But boldness in having confidence before God in prayer and communion and worship. They were casting away their confident approach to God thinking that because there was none of the carnal ordinances of Israel left to them, and they saw through a glass dimly, that somehow they were inferior to what they had had in Judaism. And they were losing their confidence. 
But what has He told us? Come boldly to the throne of grace that you may have help to, grace to help in time of need. Well, how can you come boldly? And we're going to get to that. But He says, don't cast away your boldness, which has great recompense of reward. For verse 36, you have need of patience or endurance that having done the will of God, you may receive the promise. He's writing to a New Testament audience who have the Spirit. And he's saying, there's a promise they haven't received yet. There's something they don't have yet. It's still a promise. All they have in their hands is a promise. You have need of patience, steadfast, long-suffering endurance, so that after having done the will of God, you may get that promise. So God instills hope in the heart. He holds out something for them out there they don't have. And there, chapter 11 starts. Faith gives substance to that hope. That promise. Faith is that by which I lay hold on what I don't see. Follow with me as we brush through this quickly. Verse 10. Abraham looked for a city which has the foundations. Verse 10. Whose builder and maker is God. What did Abraham look for when he went from the Ur of Chaldees over to Palestine, if we could call it that. Well, this chapter tells us that by faith, Abraham looked way beyond that dirt in the Mediterranean. He looked for the city of God, which has foundations. And had God built the entire city of Jerusalem in Abraham's lifetime and presented it to him, Abraham would have looked past it to something else that he wanted. That's what this text is telling us. He looked for something that in this world he never had and he never was going to have. A city of God's foundations. Verse 13. These all, and you're familiar with this roll call of faith up to now. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. Now let me suggest to you, if you go back to the book of Joshua and to the kings, you'll find texts that tell us that God gave them everything he told them he was going to give them. Not a single promise God promised them that he failed to deliver to them. What's the difference then? How come it says that they died in faith not having received the promises? Because there was a deeper promise, a promise of the Spirit, a promise of faith through the son Isaac that was never intended to be fulfilled by the carnal promises of Israelite children running around the descendants of Abraham in this world, a place in Jerusalem, a land on the Mediterranean. That was not the ultimate promise that they had hope in. That stuff was not the object of the faith of people like Abraham and the Old Testament saints. They all died in faith, not having grasped the promise. But having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having confessed that they're strangers and pilgrims in the earth. You see the theme? In this earth, they're strangers and pilgrims. And then in verse 15... Or verse 14, they that say such things make it manifest. They're seeking of a country of their own. Well, folks, God gave Israel Palestine, gave them the Holy Land. What else could they want? They want something else. Verse 15, if indeed they'd been mindful of the country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Wherefore, God is not ashamed of them to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And brethren, let me tell you, this is New Testament This is not a promise of the restoration of a carnal city of blocks and bricks in the Mediterranean. 
It is not a Middle Eastern promise. This is a universal promise to everyone who has the faith of Abraham in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a chapter that nullifies the cross of Christ, the uniqueness of Christ, the faith of Christ, and pursuing of Christ for the ultimate heavenly goal of the city of Christ in glory. This is New Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven. This is not old Jerusalem. This is not a replica of old Jerusalem. It is not a restoration of old Jerusalem. This is the city we all die looking to go to. None of us wants to live our days out in the Mediterranean. We want to go to glory. And God didn't promise a temporary restoration of the very thing in His wrath He tore down in A.D. 69 when He wiped out the temple. There's not one promise of such. Only the appearance of such in Old Testament prophets that some have stumbled over. These Old Testament saints died in faith for a city to come. And these are the folks that had a promise of one on this world. But that wasn't the one they died believing in and looking for. Verse 16, verse 19. Abraham believed God was able to raise the dead. That's why he was able to sacrifice up Isaac. He looked to a God who could do things beyond the grave. For the people of this world, the grave is, the, is it. That's the last word. For God's people, that's not the last word. Those who believe in God who raises the dead, there are no limits. There's no cutting off of the promises of God. Death doesn't do that. We mock death. It doesn't mock us. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? We mock death. Because of the victory that is ours in Christ. Verse 20. Jacob Blessed Isaac, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even concerning things to come. The element of a future hope. Though here it was a carnal thing, the principle of future characterizes these people's faith. Verse 22, Joseph made mention of the departure of Israel from Egypt and gave commandment concerning his bones. 400 and some odd years later, I want you, when God takes you back to the land, I want you to take my bones and bury them where they ought to be buried in hope of the resurrection. That's what's going on here. This guy has a far picture of the future. The element of his faith looks to the future. There's hope underlying this. Verse 25 and 26. Moses chose rather to share ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy pleasures of sin for a season. Well, how could he? The pleasures of sin were his. Why go out and become a Hebrew in public again and suffer with these people? Because he accounted the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. But how could he? For he looked under the recompense of reward. What reward? But verse 27. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. It wasn't the, a piece of dirt on the other side of the Jordan that essentially provided this man's ability to endure suffering. It was God. And his sight of God by faith that made him able to endure. By faith he kept the Passover, etc. All his acts of obedience were because he looked for something in the future. And then in verse 35, speaking of the prophets and all the others, women received their dead by a resurrection and others tortured, not accepting their deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. You know, I was taught by some theologians in, in college and seminary that they didn't even have a doctrine of the resurrection in the Old Testament. Well, they may not have, but they certainly had, a, had something. Hebrews 11 says they did. They had hope of a better resurrection. Obviously one from the death they were experiencing. Verse 39. And 
And these all, having had witness borne to them through their faith, received not the promise. Every one of them died, all the way up to the last prophet of the Old Testament. They died not having received the promise. Why? Verse 40 says, God has, having provided some better thing concerning us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Abraham and all these Old Testament saints are not going to be perfected until we're perfected. That's what verse 40 means. Apart from us, they will not be telestasthai, made perfect. God waited for, for, for protect, uh, per, uh, perfecting the saints till our perfection. When is ours? Abraham has not been perfected yet. He is a spirit of just men made perfect, but he's still waiting for something even better. His body has not been redeemed, not fully. He doesn't, he's not standing in a glorified body. He's the spirit of a just man made perfect. Neither have I. And that's why chapter 10 says to us New Testament believers, you have need of endurance so that after doing the will of God, you may receive the promise. Which promise? The same one made to Abraham. The same one on whom he set his hope and died believing. A heavenly city, New Jerusalem, a heavenly country, the place of the glorified saints, the redeemed of the, the body, those who would no longer be subject to the bondage of corruption in this world. And James chapter 5, without turning there, verse 7 says, Be patient, therefore, till the coming of the Lord. You see, there's a date set in God's word that you've got to wait for. It's the locus of our hope. And until that day comes, we're going to be waiting in hope. That's the posture of the saint of the New Testament. Verse 9 of Galatians 6 says, Grow not weary in well-doing. You shall reap in due time if you faint not. And the ultimate reaping is the day of Christ's coming. So let me then define for you what we're calling Christian hope. Again, I don't submit that this is the only way to define it. I think this summarizes something of the biblical essence of the doctrine of Christian hope. It is not merely wishful thinking. These people are not people who die sort of hoping that somehow something's going to happen good after this. We don't preach funeral sermons if we're trying to comfort the saint. And you've got to be preaching to two different audiences at a funeral. You've got to remember that. But when you're preaching a funeral sermon and you want to comfort the saints, you don't say, well, even though this dark providence has happened, we hope that eventually things will all work out. That's not, that's not comforting. Of course, everybody would hope that. That's not Christian hope. Biblical hope is not this wishful thinking that sort of forces itself into a mindset of optimism because there's no better thing to do. I'm not going to be happy if I don't think positively, so I'm going to think positive. I'm going to make something happen out of this good so that people will refuse to hear a gospel message at a funeral and walk by. They don't want the comfort of Christ. They don't want the need for Christ. They don't want to confess sin and be justified with God, but they'll psych themselves into walking by and say, well, well, all things will work out. I'll keep the upper lip, chin up, and they, they make this psych. That's all they have to do. It's all that's left for them. I don't ridicule that. I just state it as a fact. There's nothing else for them. So they either get mad, bitter, and despairing, or they psych themselves into positive thinking. I suggest to you that's not biblical hope. Christian hope is this. It is the firm confidence that God will complete in perfection 
the work of our salvation, which he has promised and begun in Christ. The firm confidence that God will complete in perfection the work of our salvation, which he has promised and begun in Christ. I'm going to conclude the sermon with this, and I want you to follow quickly. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11. We desire that each one of you may show the same diligence unto the fullness of hope, even to the end. The desire is to have a full assurance of hope. That's why we call it firm confidence. Verse 18. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have a strong encouragement who have fled for refuge to lay hold of what? The hope set before us. Basically what he's doing is saying to these Hebrew Christians, folks, God has set one essential and simple hope before you. Don't lose sight of it. Don't lose your boldness in it. Lay hold firmly on it and hold it till the end. Why? Because there is firm reason to believe that it will come. God has set a hope before us and intends not that we say, as we heard in our visit to Texas, some loved ones say, I hope I make it in the end. Or as some others have been heard to say, I hope I'm good enough that God will let me in. Or as Phil Donahue has said, surely God's going to say, oh, come on in. But our confident hope is not based on all of that stuff. It looks at God's promise and God's oath, whereby in two immutable things he cannot lie, and so we lay hold. They're seeking refuge from what? From this weary, lonely, confusing, frustrating, despairing world and our sin and the devil and all this stuff that makes us get up every morning and wonder if it's worth it again. I want refuge from that. And brethren, I've been alive 44 years, some longer than I in this room, not many of you. But I so far in 44 years have not waked up a single morning where I was convinced that this day had it all in this world that I wanted. Now that's just my testimony. But I think I would get the same amen from all of you if you were honest with us. That you have, you could say, yes, I'm content. The Lord's been good to me. I'm not complaining. Yes, you can say that. But you would not say, this is it. Man, I found it. This is all I want. This is the end for me. You can't say that and be biblical. No saint of the Bible can say that. They all say, I'm dying in faith. Not having yet in my hands what I long to have, what I'm going to have. I live my life waiting on something and for something that's not in my grasp yet. But I need a refuge from this world. Where do I do it? It's by faith I lay hold on this hope set before me. And in verse 19, what does he call it? And this is the hope set before us. Verse 19, which we have as an anchor of the soul. This is not wishful thinking. This is an anchor to the soul. So when the storms rage in your life, what do you do? You know confidently your ship won't sink. You've got an anchor. The storm won't blow you out to sea. You're anchored. Both sure and steadfast. How do you know it's sure and steadfast? And this brings us to the culmination 
Because it enters into that which is within the veil. What are we we talking about here? What anchor is beyond the veil? Is past death, past the heavens. What is anchored? How is my soul anchored up there where God is so that I know that I'm going to make it to harbor? How do I know that? Verse 20. Where, as a forerunner, Jesus entered for us. Literally in our place. As though in him we entered having become a high priest forever, etc. What is this promise that we wait for? What is the essential definition of Christian hope? God's complete perfection of the work of our salvation that he promised and began in Christ. Verse 25 of chapter 7 says, Wherefore also he is able to save to the uttermost them that draw nigh to God by him. That's what we want. That's where our refuge is. That's our hope. It's uttermost salvation. I want more. I must have more. My soul demands and needs and will die without more than simple conversion in the past. It's not a glory to me to be able to point back to a time I decided to follow Jesus if I'm not going to make it to the end. My question is not so much was there ever a time, but do you have confidence that there's going to be a time when you'll see God and be made like Him. Biblical hope is sure and steadfast because it's anchored in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ who has entered the veil before me, has gone as a forerunner, and He sits there at the right hand of the Father interceding for me so that I will be saved to the uttermost. He will perfect that which concerneth me. Psalm 138.8 God will finish the work He's begun in you. Philippians 1. You see, that's our hope. I want to summarize this because I want to apply it and I've got more application tonight but I want to make sure you hear this if you have your hopes set on anything other than this then seeing God and being like God then in drawing near to God and living with communion with God forever if there's any other hope in you other than that or beyond that or stopping short of that, you do not possess Christian hope. And it's probable that you're not a Christian. Because he that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. He is going to appear the second time to those who wait for him, to those who love his appearing unto salvation. If you have any plans for your life other than your soul's ultimate salvation in communion with God in person and glory, the plans for your life are going to be thwarted in hell. You're not a Christian and you need to repent of your sin before it's too late. And what I mean by repent, you need to take your eyes off of what you plan to get when you get out of the home, when you get away from this marriage, when you get away from your parents, when you get in private yourself. You need to give up and sacrifice all that junk you got lying out there before you. And you need to repent of that love of this world and your idolatrous heart. And you need to put your hope firmly on God and Christ. If you put your hope anywhere else, no wonder you're living the way you No wonder your life's falling apart around you and you're trying to do everything you can to stop, gap it, and band-aid it. No wonder you can't function with other people. You don't have hope. You're without hope. There is no other hope. There is no other place for hope 
than in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. And I tell you, it is our duty so to cultivate this that we become utterly and completely satisfied with him and him alone. If we do that, brethren, we'll know what it means to live at peace and in harmony to a great degree. And they won't be able to do much to us in this world. They'll be speaking to deaf ears. And we won't have to grumble much. We'll be like dumb children with our mouths shut. There'll be no need. Our hope is beyond the veil, firmly fixed in Christ. We're sure and certain God's going to keep his promise, fulfill what he gave us, do what he started until it's perfection. Dear brethren, we've got some who may not really want that to be what happens. Think, examine yourself. Ask yourself this question. This is the sermon's application today. Ask yourself this question. What do you want more than anything else in the world? If you could have it right now, what is it? Be honest with yourself. You have the freedom to choose for yourself what you want. What I mean is you have the privilege. But be careful. What do you want more than anything else? What are you willing to live for and die for? If it's anything other than seeing Christ and being made like him and living with him in eternity, you're not a Christian. You have not departed from your love of this world. You have not repented of your sin. You still have your eyes on riches or pleasure or girls or whatever it is. Maybe your own pride. Whatever it is. If it's anything other than Christ himself and his presence and blessing forever in glory. If you're bored with that, if that doesn't appeal to your heart, if that seems to be unworthy of your life's commitment, you're unsaved, you're lost, you're on the way to hell. You need to repent. If you will repent and ask God to change that old heart and bow before Christ, God has promised in his word that those who come to him, he'll not cast out. And those who come to God by Christ will be received and he will save them to the uttermost. You have no need to fear that if you come with that kind of heart, God's going to receive you and wash away your sins. You walk out of here having heard what you heard, though, and turning away from this message. You're, you're hardening your heart. You're endangering your soul. You're stepping on the flames of hell themselves with impunity. And may God have mercy on you. But may God help us who are in Christ to strengthen that hope that is our perpetual posture in this world. Let us pray. do thank you, O Father, for the liberty that we have felt as we preached, and we thank you for the word we were able to preach. O Lord, what would we do if we had to stand here without this book? We thank you for your word, for your promise, for your faithfulness, and we thank you for the strong hope you have given to us by what your Son has accomplished. O Lord, our God and Savior, we receive our thanks, search our hearts. And with all the remnants and the elements of our attachments and love for this world, we pray you'd remove them and set our hope firmly on that day to come and that person we'll see in glory. Oh, God, make that our heart's desire. Make living with you our heart's longing desire and satisfy that desire soon, oh, Lord, by sending your Son from heaven. Our hearts are feeble in this. We even know that much of what we've preached we fall short of. Draw near and help us by grace for the sake of Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen.